Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, good morning. Good morning to all. Happy St. Patrick's Day, and welcome to the Atlantic Council. Uh, my name is Fred Hoff. I'm the director of the Rafiq Hariri Center for the Middle East. Today's event continues the conversation started by the Council's Middle East Strategy Task Force, co-chaired by former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright and ex-National Security Advisor Steve Hadley. Our meeting today also contributes to the Council's ongoing project on America's role in the world, a series of conversations with prominent members of Congress spearheaded by our Brent Scowcroft Center. We're very honored today to hear from Congressman Adam Kinzinger on the role he thinks the United States ought to be playing in the Middle East and beyond. Mr. Kinzinger represents the 16th Congressional District of Illinois and is in his fourth term. He serves on the Foreign Affairs Committee and the Energy and Commerce Committee in the House and as a Deputy Republican Whip. Of special significance to me, he is also Major Adam Kinziger, Air National Guard, a distinguished U.S. Air Force pilot. He's flown in multiple overseas locations, including Iraq and Afghanistan. When I was, when I was young, many, many, many years ago, most members of Congress were World War II and Korean War veterans. Now, only a handful of members have served in uniform and in combat zones. As a veteran myself, who came on active duty during the era of conscription, I confess I am in total awe when able-bodied young Americans actually volunteer to serve their country in uniform. Thank you, sir, for your military service. Before I turn the floor over to the major, I'd like to remind all to use hashtag ACMEST, that's ACMEST, to join the conversation on Twitter or to ask a question if you're watching via live stream. Uh, the congressman will make a statement, then he and I will engage in a brief conversation, and then I'll turn it over to you for your questions. So please join me in welcoming Congressman Adam Kinziger. Thanks, hey, everybody. Thank you. Good morning. Hope everybody's doing well. Um, ambassador, thank you for the introduction. Thank you so much for your leadership, uh, not just as an ambassador and all the great things you've done, but your service in the military. And as I was telling him in the back, I said, you know, the interesting thing, and I'm always sure to thank all the, the Vietnam folks, because, you know, when I came back from Iraq, I remember it was 08 and 09, but I remember landing in Baltimore Airport and having f flown the rotator all day for 20 hours, which if you've ever been on what's called the rotator, it's as bad as it sounds. 
And, uh, and I landed in Baltimore, and I remember coming off, coming out of the uh, terminal, and there's literally 100 people on either side of where we walk out of applauding and just applauding. And that's all they do all day long. They just stand there and they applaud people coming off these planes, uh, the soldiers that fought uh, in the Middle East. And I was saying, you know, the difference is uh, when you came back, you guys didn't have that. And it was a really kind of a dark stain on America in terms of how we treated those that executed the war, whether you agreed or disagreed with it. And it was something we all learned from. So thank you for your service. And, uh, and you mentioned, you know, the generation that's getting involved in, in uh, politics now. When I was elected, I was elected in 2010. And I was actually the second post-9-11 veteran in Congress, the first being uh, Duncan Hunter. Um, now we're starting to get a lot more. And we'll never have the level of what we had after World War II or after Vietnam in terms of people that are veterans, but we're starting to see that generation, my generation now, turning their service from military duty into, uh, into politics. You know, when we think around it, the question of what is America's role in the world, I think you know, everybody kind of ponders this, and, and we're going to have discussions about what is our role, what should our role be in a, in a world in the post-Cold War when you used to have two polars. You know, you used to have the Soviet Union and the United States of America. We had the world figured out. It was divided into two spheres. And since then, really, we've been kind of fumbling around trying to figure out what exactly our role is. As I was pondering this question, frankly, even a few years ago, and I'm trying to decide what should our foreign policy look like, what is it we're supposed to do, does every human tragedy uh, that you see in every country deserve United States intervention, when, and when does that not uh, happen? What's, what's, the, what's the grounds? I started to think, I'm like, you know, my office has a mission statement. So I'm, you go into my office, you actually see a mission statement. Now, I'll be honest with you, I don't actually remember what my office mission statement is, but we created it, so it's cool. It's up, on my, it's up on my wall. But my office has a mission statement. If you go to IBM or you go to any business around you know, the world, they have a mission statement, and they spend, probably spend tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars to consultants to figure out what is a compelling and effective mission statement. But if I actually sat down and asked any of you, you know, what is the mission of America, what's a mission statement? Uh, most people probably look at you like you grew a second head or a little nuts. I think if you went to Paris, France, and ask a Parisian, you know, what's the mission of France? They probably would look at you like that's the weirdest question I've ever heard, and maybe respond with something like, I don't know, the French government's job is to provide clean water and and make sure we have roads and access. But there is something unique about the United States and about the American people. I'm going to get into why I think that's unique. Whereas if you go to an American and you say, what is the mission of the United States of America? I think naturally it's ingrained in us to ponder very deeply that question. And so I did the same thing. I sat around and I thought, what is the mission of our country? Especially if I'm in Congress and I'm trying to decide these things. And as I looked at the history of where we came from, where we are today, I realized something kind of became very clear. I think America's mission is simple. I think it's to be an example of self-governance to billions of people in the world that don't have what we have but are desperate for it. Now, that encompasses a broad array of things. So let's think about it in terms of, of soft power, in terms of an example. If you think of the Soviet Union, you think of the era of the Cold War, what is it that actually finally brought down the Soviet Union and, and allowed millions of people to live behind the Iron Curtain to have freedom? You know, you could argue it's the arms race, and that definitely had an effect on it. it, had a effect on the economy and on spending. But really, what actually brought down the Soviet Union was ideas. 
It was that third generation in the Cold War that was living behind the Iron Curtain that saw what, the le- what life in the West was like, that saw what it was like to be able to have freedom, to be able to elect your own leaders, to be able to have dissent without being cracked down on or having the military come in and shut you down. And they began to demand freedoms from their governments. And it was in that generation, it was the war of ideas, frankly, that ended up bringing down the larger Soviet Union. And so we look at what is the role of America then? I mean, really, the United States and the Soviet Union never fired a shot at each other. So when I say it's to be an example of self-governance to a world drowning in chaos and people that are desperate for a taste of what we have, all we did was showed our example to the world and said, you too can live your life to have what you have. But let's look at where we are today. So we don't have the Iron Curtain of the Soviet Union anymore, but I would argue we actually have multiple Iron Curtains. It's the Iron Curtain of people that live behind perpetual poverty. It's the Iron Curtain of folks that live behind radical Islamic terror and oppressive regimes in Syria. It's people that live behind an Iron Curtain of low expectations, being told that you're going to be born into this perpetual, perpetual poor you know, community and you have no hope and no future. It's discrimination. There's all these different iron curtains that exist now. And this is the role of us, I think, the role of the United States of America is to be able to recognize those iron curtains and by example bring them down. And this is why, by the way, I get very concerned with the political discourse that we have in our country today. Because there are people that are watching how we do democracy, how we do self-governance. And when they see some of the things that are said or some of the accusations made, it actually does a lot to hurt our reputation when we go to another country. When I go there as a congressman and say, hey, let me tell you how we've done things. It's kind of hard sometimes to sit down and in the face of some of the things you're seeing on the news. But I remember specifically going to Kenya and Ethiopia. A lot of members of Congress like to take that trip. It's a, it's a really good one. I've been to Liberia, one of my favorite trips as well. And I remember going to Kenya and Ethiopia, and I went to specifically this village in Kenya. And we went, and I get out of this, I'm in a stupid convoy, right? So I get out of this convoy, and everybody's kind of looking like, why is there a big convoy of trucks and stuff here? And I get out, and we go to this family, and the family had a really small plot of land and, and two cows on this land. And, and uh, we began to hear the story of how that's all they have and how they basically barely could have enough milk to get by. They obviously made no money, and they had to raise a family on that. Well, we sent a young man from the University of Illinois through a program called USAID, who went to this village in Kenya, and he began, he had an agriculture, uh, agricultural degree, and began to tell these people, hey, you guys are feeding your cows this stuff? You need to feed them this, and here's how you grow it, and here's how you make sure you harvest the seeds so that you can keep growing the stuff and keep feeding the cows. And he taught this to all these families in this village. And now their cows go from producing, you know, four pints of milk or whatever to 12, whatever cows make. I don't know what that actually is. But they had enough milk to use for their own family and then walk down the street to the co-op that the United States of America built for them where they could sell their excess milk and feed people that need it, that don't have cows, and also make a little money in that process. And as I'm hearing this story, an interesting thing happens. It goes from like 10 people standing around me wondering who this guy is in a suit in Kenya to all of a sudden now there's hundreds of people, literally hundreds of people around me because they heard that there was a man here from the United States of America. Now, they didn't know me. They didn't know Adam Kinzinger. But what they knew was that the United States of America taught them how to live a better life, taught them through its example how to, how to strive for something, for a taste of what we have. We went there in our generosity. 
That's the kind of role that I think we have in the world is that example, is showing people that they can have a better way and, and exporting that knowledge and that base to people. But then you look at the issue, for instance, of the war on terror, which obviously we're very engaged in. We could get into details, and we'll probably talk more about it, about how to execute the war on terror, how to do that. But one of the points I want to make to you is this. We have the current war on terror, and we have the next generational war on terror. That sounds controversial, right? Was he going after the next generation already in the war on terror? I actually think the next generational war on terror is way more important than what we're doing today. I remember being at a refugee camp in Turkey and walking around and seeing these kids that were brutalized by Assad. By the way, Bashar al-Assad, I believe, must go in order to have any solution uh, in the Middle East. But I remember walking around this camp and seeing these kids and thinking, you know, and the Turkey does a great job with them of what they call second or third shift schooling. When their kids are out of school, they send them there and try to teach them something. But I remember thinking, you know, this girl, this seven-year-old girl I'm looking at, had to run away from her home after being brutalized by Bashar al-Assad, and she has that memory right now. And now she lives in a camp, and she's happy, and she has her school backpack, but the question is, are we teaching her how to read and how to write and how to have hope and how to have opportunity? Are we, in effect, with the next generation in the Middle East, starving ISIS, starving Daesh of their recruits? If you have a situation where people have hope and opportunity in the Middle East, and they have economic development, and they have something to live for and something to look forward to, if you're a terrorist group, you're going to find somebody way less likely to join your cause. You're, in fact, going to find somebody that's actually willing to stand up for you, that's willing to drain the swamp of terrorism and, and bring freedom to the Middle East. Ladies and gentlemen, I think that is the most important aspect of the war on terror we fight today. Now, I'm an unabashed hawk. I believe that we have to take out terrorist targets where they exist. I think there is a military component to what is happening immediately. But when we look at things like massive cuts to the U.S. Department of State, when we look at things like cuts to USAID and foreign aid, this is the kind of stuff that will have a lasting impact and make my next generation, my kids, have to fight the same war that I fought too. But it's when we look beyond that and we look and say America has a mission to be an example of self-governance to millions or billions of people that don't have what we have but are desperate for it. And we export that mission to the next recruiting ground of Daesh or Al-Qaeda 3 or whatever the next iteration of this is. That's when we find success. When we recognize the immediate and near-end goal and the long-term goal. Now that is something, frankly, that I think our country has not done a good job of articulating is the end goal, the long state. And that's what's very important to do. I want to tell one more story, and I'm, I'm excited to, uh, to have this conversation with the ambassador and with all of you. You know, I talk about why is it I think we have what we have. And, and uh, I, look, I, I'm not arrogant about America being America. I'm not one of these guys that say America has to rule the world to take over the world. I just think we're in a unique position to bring a lot of stability that other countries don't have, that other countries cannot do with the values that we have. If you look at the inception of how we were even found, look, mine comes from kind of a spiritual belief. I believe God actually invented the United States of America to be an example of self-governance to the world. Because he looked at a, at a world that was drowning in chaos and said, how am I going to make a country that's going to be that example? So what does he do? He takes a country filled with resources, the United States, and he brings people from all backgrounds. My family came from Germany in the 1850s. You know, one of my staffers here, I was teasing her because it's uh, St. Patrick's Day. Her family super came from Ireland. She's super Irish. 
And, uh, you know, and I've got staffers from all over the place. I look around this room and I see people here from all over the world. You brought people from all different backgrounds, all different politi political philosophies, together to a nation, and somehow, despite our challenges today, somehow we figured out how to govern ourselves. Now, when you look at a country that's having a hard time doing that, it's probably not as diverse as we are. So that's what the example is there. And then you look at how we grew in our history. We had to fight a revolution just to be free. Then we had to fight a civil war because we had to realize that you can't keep, you had to keep a union together and you can't keep a race in chains. And then we fought World War I, which is like our emergence onto the world scene, and then World War II, which was our super emergence onto the world scene. And then you look and you watch America grow into its role in the world. But there's something unique about Americans and American soldiers, as the ambassador was talking about. He mentioned that there are kids that raise their right hand, sign on the dotted line to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and obey the orders of legally appointed officers above you. I swear that twice. I did it in the military, and I do that in Congress. But there's something very unique about that. So today, there's an 18-year-old kid somewhere near here that's walking into the recruiting station who was two years old, I guess, if you do the math right, when 9-11 happened. So these aren't folks that remember the, the planes flying into the building, but they do know that America is a special place that needs defended. They do know there's pride in serving in the armed forces. And I remember, was, as I was giving a Purple Heart to somebody, this is six months into my first term, so this is five and a half years ago now or so, and I'm getting the brief and I know I got to go do this thing in Morris, Illinois, and I read this guy's story. We were still in Iraq at the time. It was 2011, and I saw that this was his second Purple Heart. So I pull him aside, and it's a group probably like this. The press is there, and I'm going to give him, you know, it's kind of the hometown newspaper. And I pull him aside, and I said, hey, how you doing? We're talking. By the way, I found out this guy had had something like four or five or six heart attacks since he had been home from Iraq. Now, he's my age. He has a wife and two daughters. Now, he had been wounded in Iraq, sent to Germany, recovered back to Iraq, and in Iraq he was wounded again, and that was the injury that sent him home. Now think about this. You've been injured twice for your country. He's sitting at home right now. He's got two daughters that are, you know, he has to, he has to supply for, he has to provide for. He's got a wife, and in the process of this, he's repeatedly having heart attacks and medical issues. So I pulled him aside, I started talking to him, and I said, Hey, let me, let me ask you a question. I go, do you ever miss it over there? And if you haven't served in the military here, you won't necessarily understand. I think the ambassador will. You don't miss the war. You don't miss the violence. But you miss the people you were there with. You miss the clarity. You miss the, there's something about in a man's life, I think, going to war is the height of anything you'll ever experience. I could get elected president of the world and it'll never match war. And I don't mean war in terms of being fun or awesome or exciting. I just mean it in terms of, a, of, a, of an opening experience. And I can't explain it further than that. So I asked this guy, I said, you miss it? I said, because honestly, I miss it every day. And he kind of smiles at me and he goes, Congressman, he goes, it's actually funny you say that because he said, I called my army representative two weeks ago. And he goes, I told him that they could have all my medals I told him I would sign on the dotted line that they owe me no VA benefits and, they, and I'll give up my pension. So he's 100% disabled, so he gets his salary the rest of his life as he should. He's like, I'll sign that they don't give me that. I'll sign this and do that. 
He goes, I'm willing to give up everything. All they have to do, congressman, and I'm begging them to do it, send me back to Iraq for one more year. Like he would give up a $2,000, $3,000 a month paycheck and all his VA benefits if they would only let him go back one more time. Now, why did he do that? Number one, he misses his friends who were still over there. And number two, because a guy that gave two Purple Hearts to his country, heart attacks, questions about what tomorrow's going to look like, a guy that sacrificed so much for his country still feels like he needs to do more. So I look at that and stories like his and say, I think America has got a great future ahead of us. But I think we have to recognize our mission, embrace it, run with it, bring the walls down, and reach our arms out. Thank you all for the opportunity to be here, and I look forward to the discussion. Terrific. Terrific. Did I go long? No, this was, uh, this was perfect. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Congressman, something, uh, yeah, something that I'm generally curious about in terms of, in terms of, how, of how you do your job uh, with your constituents on these particular issues. Uh, in my opening remarks, I referred to this uh, Middle East Strategy Task Force report, this bipartisan effort. One of, the, uh, one of the passages from, from the report, and I'll, and I'll quote, many in the United States and the West simply want to change the channel True. on the Middle East. Having seen the region in turmoil for decades, they unsurprisingly want nothing to do with it, unquote. When you're back in places like Rockford, Dixon, Pontiac, I'm, I'm sure you hear this mm -hmm. once or twice. Uh, you know, what do you, what do you say to, to constituents who are just tired of all this and, and who think that basically we ought to pull up the drawbridge? So, I mean, it's, it's from a foreign policy perspective, with the exception of talking about executing the war on terror, which is still popular, um, that's kind of the foreign policy President Trump got elected on. Now, that said, those were his words. I actually have been pretty impressed with his policy moves so far. I want to be very clear about that, I think, his actual foreign policy. But, um, yeah, there's no doubt people. i got to tell you, one of the toughest times in my career, uh, I've been in, this is my seventh year now, and it was definitely the toughest time for my staff. I had staff literally ready to cry and quit their job, which happens a lot because I yell at them. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> was the day that President Obama announced he was going to enforce the red line in Syria. Now, I came out hard and supported President Obama and said, you cannot put down a red line on the use of chemical weapons and then not enforce it. Never since World War I have we as an international community accepted the use of chemical weapons as any level of normalcy. And so I'm out there very hard. Now, something interesting happened. A guy who later became a little more famous by the name of Ted Cruz made the decision that he was going to go on television and not make this about Syria. He was going to make it about President Obama. And he made the comment that I will not allow Americans to act as Al-Qaeda's Air Force. That's what he said. I challenged him in a committee and said, that's a cheap line that's used to garner political headlines and not an actual discussion of foreign policy. If you think that attacking Bashar al-Assad is somehow acting as Al-Qaeda's Air Force, you have no idea what's going on in the Middle East. Um, but I was one of only about two or three Republicans very aggressively 
saying that you have to enforce this red line. Well, my base goes bananas. And the calls to the office were, you know, Kinzinger is a you know, rhino. He wants Iraq 3. I was the first member of Congress to call for bombing ISIS in Iraq. Well, now, you know, that's, of course, Iraq 3. Kinzinger is a warmonger. Turns out to be right in both cases. And I'm not saying that to brag, but I'm saying that being in Congress is, in my mind, it's not about doing things to get reelected. Getting reelected is important, but it's important so that you have more opportunities to lead. Leadership is just that. It's leading, right? And it's, it's taking a difficult situation, like folks say, hey, we need to be out of the Middle East. You know, 16 years is too long. We've been there really since 1991 and before. If I just wanted to get elected and tell people what they wanted to hear, I'd say, yeah, we're, we have war fatigue. Let's bring all the boys home and fix the bridges, right? You know, that's what you hear. But I know that really what happens if I do that is in 10 years, we're going to be back with a much bigger mess on our hands. And uh, look, it's the old saying, you may not be interested in war, but war may be interested in you. Yeah. You, uh, you mentioned, Congressman, the, uh, uh, your encounter awarding, uh, awarding a Purple Heart. Uh, to an Iraq veteran who was, uh, who was quite willing uh, to go back. You've served there. Uh, we may not be long from the liberation of uh, Mosul right. from ISIS. It may not take all that long uh, to finish ISIS in Iraq. Uh, no doubt there's going to be a good deal of public sentiment saying, mission accomplished, okay. we're done here, we're done here. Uh, bring these uh, men and women in uniform home. As you, as you process Iraq now, how do you see this? Defeat of, defeat of ISIS, mission accomplished. Do we have an ongoing role? Do you anticipate that there will be a continued military presence in Iraq for a while? I do. I think, you know, we, we had our touch the stove moment uh, when ISIS came into Iraq. You know, we made the decision. President Obama made the decision. Some would argue it was President Bush. I just would take issue with that, however. But the decision was made that we would no longer have troops after 2011. And I remember watching that and being heartbroken because I knew that without the steady kind of hand of American leadership bringing people together and, you know, working out political differences, which go way beyond anything we imagine. I mean, you think Democrat, Republicans bad, just, you know, understand some of the divisions in Iraq and, and how difficult that is to bring people together in, a, in, a, in that kind of a scenario. Um, I knew that when we left, this, I mean, I would have predicted exactly this thing. I didn't know if it was called ISIS, and I didn't actually know who the group was going to be to overtake, the war, to overtake Iraq, but I knew it was going to fall apart. Well, what's heartbreaking to me is we can argue about whether we should or should not have gone into Iraq, um, and we can argue how we should have done it differently. I think we should have sent more troops, had a better post game, and never disbanded the Iraqi military, and I think we'd have been in a better situation. However, after going through very difficult times, after going through the surge of which I was part of flying ISR in, in Iraq, I mean, we had this thing won. This is the thing that I hope history records and remembers is we won the war in Iraq. We defeated a previous version of ISIS in Iraq, AQI. So we need to learn from that mistake, I think, of pulling out. As long as the Iraqi government will have us, and I think they will, we need to have a lasting force there uh, to ensure political stability, to ensure that we can stiffen the spine of the Iraqi military as a very capable military force when they have strong leadership with them. So I think it's going to be an enduring and ongoing mission. 
I think Afghanistan's gonna be an enduring and ongoing mission. And I think the mistake we made early on is people expect these things to be microwave wars, like 30 seconds, it's done. Um, that doesn't happen anymore. We are fighting a generational war on terror. I think for as long as I'm alive, there will be some level of engagement on this. It stinks to hear, it's terrible, I know, it's like, oh my God. But it's, there's, I think there's gonna be a low-grade conflict like this for a very long time until the next generation, whichever generation that is, comes in and throws out terrorist leaders and says, you know, we believe in our religion, but we also believe that other people can live peacefully. Obviously, Congressman, you, uh, you, you, you agree with the view that uh, if, uh, if, if terrorist extremism is going to be defeated in the Middle East, it's going to be the people. Yeah, of, the, of the region uh, who really do it, you know, with our assistance, the assistance of others. But essentially, essentially, uh, it's locals yep. who are going to do it. Uh, and, uh, you know, for those of us whose main interest is the defense of the United States and the protection of American citizens, partnerships, partnerships with governments and people in the Middle East, North Africa, vitally important. Uh, there's, there's a whirlwind going on now about executive orders and uh, uh, refugees and so forth. Uh, as, you, as you evaluate this, uh, what, is, what is your sense of the, of the potential impact of this political controversy in the United States about refugees and so forth? on our prospects for uh, partnerships in the region. So I, I have conflicting views on this. So I believe the president has the authority. I'm very much a presidential power person, and that's part of why I've been, you know, when President Obama was president and everybody says we need a new authorization for the use of force against ISIS, I believe he was acting actually legally under the current use of force, et cetera. I believe the president has the authority to make those decisions. I believe that this was wrong, though. And I think, you know, it's one thing if you have evidence that, you know, for instance, Syria, when you have no existing government and it's very difficult to vet people, the president's number one priority needs to be the security of the United States of America. And I don't think anybody in here would disagree with that. I was very pleased that the president took Iraq off of the list. I met with the Iraqi ambassador and I agreed with him when he said, look, here's the concern. The concern is... You're sending a message right now when we're your biggest ally in the war on terror. You're sending a message that you don't want us. And he goes, there's three reactions in Iraq. The first is people that are shocked. The other is, I forget what the second one was. But he said, the one that concerns me the most is people that are really happy that you did this because they have an interest in watching our relationship with you fall apart, Iran specifically, and then folks that are, are counter to the U.S. alliance. I don't think it's necessarily a right move. I think you can put in good vetting standards. I think it's imperative on an administration to make sure we're vetting properly and bringing only the right, you know, safe folks in here. Um, but I think it sends a bad message. That said, I have talked to ambassadors in the Middle East that tell me off the record uh, this is not going to have any lasting damage. And frankly, they're actually pretty excited about what they've been hearing uh, from the administration so far, specifically a lot of the Gulf states area. Very good. I must. I must say. I'll just interject. It's a. It's a great uh, having having appeared before your committee. It's mm -hmm. a great pleasure for me to ask you questions. <laughs> um, I hope I was nice to you. I don't you remember. <laughs> I'm not a were, yeller usually. You, were. Um, you 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 mentioned you mentioned the red line, and of, and of course today is is roughly, if not exactly, uh, the sixth anniversary wow. of the uh, of the beginning of uh, of violence uh, in Syria. Uh, the reaction of the Syrian government to uh, uh, peaceful protest, which of course has escalated into something horrific 
yeah. over the last six years. Uh, you mentioned you mentioned the red line incident. As you uh, as you reflect back over the past six years, are there are there any any particular lessons learned you derive from all of this? And do you have any sense at all of a way forward for the United States with this? Well, let me. I want to address a couple of I think falsehoods that exist when you discuss Syria. I can't tell you the number of people that say. Yeah, Assad's a bad guy, but ISIS is worse, all right? You do not understand politics when you say that. Because it is not a binary choice between a strong man in the Middle East or terrorism. And, you know, to do that and to basically relegate an entire region of people to violent strongmen because you're too lazy to think through how politics actually works in a way to help people because you're home and with your Mercedes in your nice house watching television, drinking whatever drink you choose to drink, and you don't care about what people over there live under, you are absolutely, utterly incorrect if you think the choice in the region is between strongmen and terror. That's our friends, the Russians, that's what they believe. That is their view of the Middle East. That is entirely incorrect. Now, if you don't have a concern for human rights, if you're cool with bombing schools, and you're cool with using GPS-guided bombs to penetrate hospitals and kill doctors, um, and you're willing to fully oppress a civilian population, dictatorships may work in terms of real politic. Uh, but I will tell you, if they work for five years or ten years, with the advent of smartphones and technologies and the ability to communicate, they don't last. It used to be in 1980 under the you know, Saddam Hussein regime, if you and I wanted to rebel against Hussein, we get a few more people with us, and one of y'all is going to be a government monitor. You're going to come to this meeting, go home, and then the rest of us are going to be killed. But now we can go on Twitter, and we can communicate, and we can show up at the square and 10 or 20,000 people, and no government, no strong man can oppress that. And that's what, that's what Assad tried to do in Syria, and the people rose up. The other, the other, so you have that issue. The other rumor I want to dispel is this idea that intervention is wrong. Just look at Libya, okay? Libya's got challenges. There's no doubt about that right now. But if I look at Libya and I compare that to Syria and say pick which country's in better shape, I would say I think Libya's in better shape right now than Syria. By the way, we intervene in Libya. So intervention is not pretty. I, we don't intervene in Syria, which is what we should have done, frankly, five years ago, and then expect you know, uh, rainbows and puppy dogs everywhere, and everybody's just praising and thanking. There is going to be political instability. But during the red line, I had some in my own party, your Ted Cruz, Rand Paul types, that said, if you attack, you are going to create much more instability than you ever imagined. So we didn't attack. And guess what's happened? Much more political instability than we've ever imagined. It cannot get any worse. Maybe it can. I hate to think how it can. So where are we at today? So lessons learned are, you know, look, I'm not advocating for American intervention in every civil war, every tragedy. But there are some areas where intervention is important. When the red line was used, right before the red line, the discussion all over the world was how do we get Assad out of office? What is it we can do? I mean, give him a nice house in Brazil and a billion dollars, right? Who cares? Let's get him out of office and transition. When we failed to enforce the red line, that discussion has not happened since. And it's, not, it's no longer about where does Assad go. It's about what part of Syria does he control when this is over. So that's a lesson I've learned in this. Now, where do we go from here? Look, every day that goes by, the options are worse. The options are worse and worse. Um, I think a political solution is imperative now. Our friends, the Russians, ourselves, 
um, I guess Assad, FSA, whatever forces exist, we need to come to a solution that works. But where I would criticize the prior administration and Secretary Kerry, if you go to the negotiating table and you try to come to an end, an agreement, you have to have that backed up with a stick. You have to have that backed up with hard power. You cannot sit down and say, we want a peaceful negotiation or else we'll go to the UN and be really sad and then ask for more negotiations. We get walked over when we do that. If you say we want a peaceful solution, and by the way, when you bomb a UN convoy of innocent people, there are going to be punishing strikes against the regime. Any violation of this ceasefire will result in punishing strikes against the regime. I think we can have peace that way, and I think we can have it now. But it takes tough decisions. We are, uh, we're in the process now of, uh, of deploying additional boots on the ground in eastern Syria uh, to try to close with, uh, close with ISIS and kill it. There are reports of, uh, of an artillery unit, for example, uh, being deployed. Beyond, beyond liberating Raqqa and perhaps some other areas in eastern Syria, what is, what is your sense of the, of the ultimate, ultimate mission there? I mean, what, what comes, what, if anything, comes after finishing ISIS in eastern Syria? Well, this is what I don't know. And this is the difficulty, and this is the trillion-dollar question. You know, there, we all know it's very complicated in Syria. We know this, the different groups and, and everything. I, what I worry about with the last administration, and frankly, even with this one, is what is our goal in Syria? I, I frankly think that you have to have an end game to Syria at large. You have to have an end game to Bashar al-Assad. I'm not advocating for you know, killing Assad, although he very much deserves it, by the way. After 50,000 children die, I think you know, you're a piece of garbage. But I'm saying there has to be an answered political solution to this. Now, what I'm concerned about is we liberate Raqqa. You know, ISIS decides to fold up and go home. You killed the organization, but you didn't kill the ideology and the ideology of that idea of a caliphate or the idea of you know, radical terror, um, you didn't kill that. And so all we have to do, all that will happen is then when we're, as you'd mentioned, we're in Syria now, we have 1,200 Marines there, you know, special forces, everything. ISIS is gone, Baghdadi's dead, and now everybody's like, well, let's bring the boys home, right? That's what's next, bring them all home. So we bring them all home. And then the same people that basically invented AQI and then invented ISIS and invents a group called ISIS-2, right? Or AQI-2 or Al-Qaeda-3. That's why that next generational fight is important. And I think you have to fix Syria at large to do this. There is a major culture clash, and this isn't, this isn't a far-right race thing I'm saying. There is a massive culture clash right now in Europe. And, uh, and you're seeing the rise of some of these far-right parties as a reaction to it. I think fix Syria and allow the very people that need to be in Syria to secure its future the opportunity to go home and rebuild. You cannot do that under the current structure right now. And so with the Russians, with you know, our, our friends and allies, we need to figure out a long political end state because, again, the kids that are in, in camps right now that are not learning and are told they don't have any opportunity is the next Al-Qaeda 3's fighters.
Good. I'll, uh, I'll ask one more and then, uh, and then turn it over to the audience. And my final question actually has little or nothing to do with the, with the Middle East. Uh, one of today's headlines is uh, the Secretary of State in Asia uh, saying, in essence, that we, uh, we need to turn a page with North Korea and that uh, all options are on the table. What does that mean to you, Congressman? Well, when I hear all options are on the table, I mean, I think that includes uh, diplomatic to the military spectrum. Um, I think North Korea, I, I have to confess, you know, I'm a Middle East kind of focused guy, Europe, you know, that's always been what I've, so I've only recently, I mean, I've always kind of known about Asia and paid attention, but I've really started to study it more deeply recently. Um, I never took the North Korean threat, I have to admit, all that seriously. You know, how long in our, my 39 years of life do you hear about, you know, this crazy regime and people that worship a leader and, you know, and cry when he smiles, I don't know, you know, whatever it is, and you didn't take it seriously. Well, I take this guy seriously because I think he's nuts. I really do. I think he's a nihilist. I think he is so selfish that at the point he realizes his life's not worth anything, he may do something utterly crazy. I think the answer to North Korea is going to be in the Russians and in the Chinese. It's, it's being able to have those folks that are closer to the North. I mean, obviously, we have a very bad relationship with them. We're not pals. Um, to be able to exert influence on North Korea. I think that's, frankly, behind some of the moves you're seeing over there is to encourage our friends in the region uh, who I think are rightfully concerned with North Korea as well to step up. Missile defense is important. Uh, missile shield in Europe and in our country is extremely important to do. I think being able to take out a, a missile at its inception, at its launch stages, is going to be very important. So we have a lot of options out there we're working on. But when I hear all options are on the table, look, we have a sworn duty to defend our ally in South Korea. And if this guy decides that he wants to keep escalating and it ends up in a shooting war, it'll be the worst war I think we've seen since World War II, maybe even on a, re on a localized basis even worse than anything we've even seen in World War II. Yeah, I, I suspect our Japanese allies are just a little bit concerned yeah, too. And they should be. And they should be. Okay, uh, I'd, like to, uh, I'd like to turn it over to you. Uh, what I'd like you to do is when you, when you, get, when you get the mic, uh, please stand up, identify yourself, and uh, ask the congressman a question. Yes, sir. Um, thank you. Uh, my name is Rafi. I work for a defense consulting firm in D.C. Um, Congressman, thank you for your service in the military yeah. in Afghanistan and Iraq and now in Congress. Uh, you might agree with the notion that part of advancing a country's foreign policy happens th through strategic messaging designed to convey a, a, a consistent narrative to reassure allies and um, deter foes. Now, um, what we can see happening around here uh, the White House press secretary says, you know, one thing, the State Department, something else, the vice president, what? another really? thing. <laughs> and then the president, um, co something completely different in a tweet. Um, so that is strategic uh, messaging and that consistent narrative is lacking. Um, uh, that leaves our allies discombobulated all over the world and our enemies emboldened. In your opinion, what can we do, uh, or what can uh, Congress do, if anything, to, to unify America's narrative to the world? Thank you. Well, Congress can't unify on anything. So, um, I mean, my party can't even unify on a health care bill right now. So, um, 
but I think we have to, this is part of the reason I do like a lot of television, right? It's not because I want to be famous. It's because I have an opportunity to talk to a million people about America's role in the world and why, and why that's important. Um, you know, McCain, Lindsey Graham, who I happen to see eye to eye with on a lot of stuff, uh, they're very out there. So I think, you know, in terms of Congress, you know, we have resolutions we pass, which are very important to the countries that are targeted by them or that are helped by them. Uh, even though that doesn't necessarily make national news when we do things like that. I think Congress and people that know what they're talking about being out there discussing these issues is important. From the administration perspective, though, look, I'm going to give Donald Trump, and I was, I was critical of Donald Trump, um, I'm going to give him a little bit of, of credit at a moment because, like I said, his foreign policy moves have actually, uh, there's not been anything he's done on foreign policy that I have disagreed with. I have liked what he's done. I will tell you, when I got elected to Congress, I had no political experience. It took me a good year to know when to give a political speech versus when to give a congr congressman's speech. You know, when do you do a speech as to the, you know, the Chamber of Congress where I'm not throwing out red meat to a Republican audience and when do you switch that? I think, it's, I think Donald Trump is having to learn how to be president versus how to be a candidate because he has not been in politics before. But it's interesting, you know, you have the message of, of Russia um, that he told, but then the, the foreign policy moves have actually been good. You know, doubling down on the European Reassurance Initiative, uh, Nikki Haley stressing the importance of NATO and Crimea returned to its rightful owner and things like that. Um, so, uh, you know, messaging is, is a challenge right now, and I'm, I'm going to give the administration a little bit of time. It's a total change of government. Uh, the Senate is slow walking all these confirmations, and I hope that straightens out. I hope that answers your question. Mr. Kramer, great seeing you, by the way. <laughs> not that I know some of you in here, not that I'm like not saying hi to you too. I just good to see him. <laughs> yes, sir. Hi, uh, I'm Kai Saleriani. I'm a researcher from Yemen, and uh, my question is addressed to the congressman. Uh, um, it is about the situation in Yemen and uh, the, uh, uh, the the position of the administration. Uh, my understanding is that the uh, U.S. administration has augmented its support to the uh, Saudi campaign in Yemen that's entering the third year of, of uh, confrontations. Uh, this has not only, you know, created vacuum for, uh, for uh, Al-Qaeda and other uh, fundamental groups to grow in, in Yemen and create a vacuum for uh, chaos there, but also has created one of the worst uh, humanitarian, um, you know, situations in, in the world with about f seven, 17, 17 million people uh, starving. So what's the position of, of the UN, of the US, um, uh, you know, regarding this humanitarian situation and the future of Yemen? So look, I, I, that's a great question. And, and uh, I think, unfortunately, Yemen doesn't get enough attention. Um, you know, it's, I've been to Yemen, by the way, I was there right before it fell apart again. And uh, it's a great place, neat, I loved, I loved it. And uh, I didn't eat any cot or whatever, or cat, but, um, but it, you know, it's sad to see what, what's happened. Um, I think, you know, I hope there's an end, but I hope it's an end without Iran in the future. Um, I wanna see peace there, but I wanna see peace without Iranian hegemony. Um, I think you're correct in, in terms of where the administration stands on this, in terms of back in the Saudi air campaign, the Saudi campaign. I think it's important, though, as, as well as fighting Iran's proxies there, uh, that we push back and, and are, you know, against, if you talk about uh, AQI or AQAP resurgence, pushing back against that. 
Um, but I'm very, I'm very uh, understanding of the fact that that's your home and it's being you know, torn apart, as you would feel right now if you were Syrian, frankly. Um, so, uh, but I think you will see, and I agree with them, you will see the administration continue to back the Saudi air campaign. I just hope that we can get to an end very soon. Good. Yes, sir. All the way in the back. Thank you, Congressman. Uh, my name is Ben Larned from the Iraq Foundation. Hey, Ben. Um, my question is, in regards to the finishing of ISIS, what would be the next step in dealing with the YPG, and is there a U.S. plan to reconcile differences among the Kurds? Are you nervous about Turkey disrupting that process? And in regards to Turkey, at what point does the U.S. publicly step in and address what's going on in Turkey regarding um, the crackdown and specifically next month's referendum, which would keep Erdogan in power up until 2029, which is that sounding alarms like in your? Uh, Should sound thank alarms. You. I mean, thank you. Um, you know, look, let me let me preface this by saying Turkey is an extremely important NATO ally. Um, there are many people that, with our disagreements, I think are eager to like throw the relationship with Turkey out. You know, oh, the Turks are mean. Erdogan's a, a Islamist. He's mean. You know. We have to do our best to, to preserve that relationship. There is there is very there are very few that are more important. We have to be open about our disagreements. You know, I'm concerned about basically a lifetime presidency. Um, but at the same time, I think the more we address internal doings in Turkey, the more likely it is to end up not our way because it's seen as meddling and things like that, which we have to be careful with a U.S. ally of. In terms of the Kurdish issue, here's the problem. The problem is the prior administration. Uh, I think very much slow walked an escalating campaign against ISIS and looked for any allies anywhere. Look, the Kurds in Iraq, for instance, are among the best friends to the United States. It was a part of the territory in which no Americans were ever died during the war. Uh, they are great friends. Uh, there is a lot of concern with PKK, obviously, and YPG, and what does that look like after? Um, I think a lot of this problems and a lot of the problems we have with Turkey right now, the internal fights within NATO, is because we had an administration that just looked for a friend anywhere and armed them instead of you know, stepping up American involvement, instead of uh, rallying our Middle East allies, which only we have the ability to do, frankly. Um, you know, our allies in the Middle East said they were willing to put troops on the ground in Syria instead of us, but we had to have a plan for Assad because Assad was, was, was a deal. I think we missed an opportunity there. So what is the answer to the Kurd situation? Does the administration have one? I don't know. Um, I think this administration understands the, prob the, the difficulty and the importance of the relationship with Turkey, and we'll just have to watch. But from my perspective, I think we made some early missteps in that, and we need to find, we need to find a way through this. Okay. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. I'm Lydia Bornan. Thank you. Coach. Hi, Lydia. <laughs> so I, I just want to... I know you know this, but um, it doesn't get said enough, I think. Um, one of the, everybody talks about the cost of inaction in Syria to Syria, but there's a huge cost, of course, to the countries in the region. Huge cost to Lebanon, huge cost to Jordan, huge cost to Turkey, and um, you talk about that, but a lot of colleagues, you know, kind of overlook it. So how can we raise awareness of that? So the best stat I've ever heard was from the King of Jordan that said, um, Jordan has the equivalent of all of Canada moving into the United States without a job. And, uh, and Jordan does not have the resources we have. Uh, they are way beyond what they thought their breaking point would be. 
Um, I think that's important for people to remember, especially when we talk about massive cuts to foreign aid, right, and the instability that could create. Um, Lebanon the same, you know, I mean, obviously the region is bearing the brunt of this. We, we look at this and we see human tragedy on TV and are affected. Uh, they live it every day. And, and I think it's important to get that message out there and, and continue to talk about it. But again, look, this is what leadership is out here. Uh, you may have people in your district that do not give a rat's behind about foreign policy, right? It's hard to understand. They're having a hard time keeping a job. You know, the economy is hurting them. And understandably, according to Mavlov's hierarchy of needs, uh, this is not their concern. But that's what leadership is. It is standing in front of people and explaining why they ought to be concerned. And that's why, you know, when you look at, uh, I, I can't remember, the, and I'm not an Obama basher. You have to understand, I disagree with him a lot, but I don't unnecessarily attack him because I don't think that should happen. But I can't remember one time in eight years that President Obama made the case for American troops anywhere from a moral perspective. So I think that's going to be important for President Trump to find, try to find out how to do, to make the case for Americanism, American intervention around the world. Not intervention everywhere, but involvement. Uh, I hope we get there. Congressman, since we're, uh, you know, since we're both uh, descendants of Germans who came here in the 1850s, let me, uh, let me wrap it up with this. I remember what do you, you from uh, the boat. Yeah. <laughs> it was quite a trip. Um, what do you... Uh, you got really drunk. What do you... Uh, <laughs> so that's what we do in the south of Germany, for sure. Uh, what do you what do you hope what do you hope to be accomplished uh, from the uh, from the visit of uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel? Well, I, look, I hope there is a a uh, kind of a, a coming together. Of course, you know, I mean, Europe's been very critical of President Trump, uh, and he, he's earned a lot of that. Some of it he hasn't. So, you know, obviously Angela Merkel is, I would consider, the leader of probably the strongest nation in Europe. And, uh, and hopefully it's an opportunity that they get along personally very well, which is important. We begin to see eye to eye on, on goals when it comes to NATO. Look, Germany has got to do their NATO. They have to get to 2% of GDP. You know, we have, a lot of we have some countries that are covering their 2% and some that aren't. And one of the chief violators of that is Germany, to be honest with you. And they are the ones that have the ability to do it. So I think something out of that. Uh, I met with a German representative yesterday who was talking about what's the future of Afghanistan. And uh, so I hope they come to an agreement there. I think you'll see a little more uh, U.S. involvement in Afghanistan, probably some more troops. And I hope NATO matches their commitment as well on that, uh, which NATO's been very good to stick with that. And, and, uh, and NATO has my compliments. But that's my hope. And I want to say briefly just on NATO, uh, I commend the, Geor the, uh, the Georgians for their actions in, in NATO. Uh, they have uh, been involved in the mission in Afghanistan, despite not being NATO members. Um, and they have taken the highest casualties, uh, basically, per capita of any partner involved, I think, with the exception of us. So uh, it's really amazing the kind of involvement that they've had. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in uh, thanking Congressman Kinzinger. Thank you, guys. Thank you.